Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, finally, after a long interruption from a hurricane and a couple of impromptu programs, we are going to return to our commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon. And this is part 11. It is titled, The Wisdom of Kings, which is what Solomon is offering here. Discussing the later portion of Wisdom Chapter 5, in our last presentation on the Wisdom of Solomon here, which was titled, Who are the World? We had observed that wisdom describes the promised vengeance of Yahweh God against his enemies in different terms, but in a manner which is completely agreeable in meaning with prophecies of that same vengeance which are found in Micah chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 18. Once we understand what Solomon had meant where he said that Yahweh would make the creature, referring to the children of Israel, his weapon for the revenge of his enemies as he himself defines the creature, or creation, as the 12 tribes of the children of Israel organized under the law in Wisdom chapter 19, then we can also understand that he was describing that same phenomenon, which was prophesied in different terms in Micah chapter 4 as a call to the children of Israel to arise and thresh, and in Revelation chapter 18, as a call to the people of God to come out of her, my people, and then to turn and reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she has filled, filled to her double. So all three passages have virtually the same meaning in the same prophetic context. So, in the wisdom of Solomon, we see what Micah had also prophesied and what Christ himself confirms in chapter 18 of his revelation, that the children of Israel themselves shall ultimately be the instruments which are employed by Yahweh God in the execution of his vengeance against his enemies. And that is the day which all true Christians should await with anticipation. Paul of Christ, Paul of Tarsus, I'm sorry, Paul of Tarsus, as we have also noted, discussing that chapter, said that same thing where he had told the Corinthians in his epistle to them that they would take vengeance against all disobedience once their own obedience was fulfilled or perfected, and Christians should strive towards that goal. Ultimately, the proof of a prophet is found in the fulfillment of the prophecy. But in this case, the prophecy is still anticipated. So the fulfillment is not yet realized. However, if the author of wisdom prophesied things, which are also found in the words of later prophets, 
And then in the words of Christ himself and his apostles, such as Paul, although the language used to describe those things is markedly different, the prophet is nonetheless verified because the word of God has confirmed the prophecy for him. While wisdom has heretofore expressed many concepts which are found in the Psalms and Proverbs of Scripture, there are other concepts which it presents that are not found in those works of David or Solomon or anywhere else in the earlier writings. Wisdom's description of the children of Israel under the law as a distinct and peculiar creation and their organization as the world of Scripture is only partially alluded to in Isaiah, but it is never stated explicitly. Yet the truth of these expressions and others is confirmed in the letters of Paul of Tarsus and the Apostle Peter. While wisdom, in turn, also helps to clarify some of the statements in the Gospel of Christ. And in turn, these concepts are confirmed in the Gospel of Christ. Acknowledging these aspects of the work leads to the conclusion that the book is true and that it deserves fully to be recognized among our scriptures. While we cannot repeat everything which we have already illustrated while discussing the first five chapters of wisdom, we will offer one example. Here in wisdom, we see how Christ had come to save the world, yet he had come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel because they alone are his world. Recognizing that Solomon was the author of wisdom and realizing that he was fulfilling the role of a prophet when wisdom was written, we, we may see the verses which open chapter 6 as being prophetic in nature. And while we already discussed them at length in our last presentation, we will repeat them in summary here. From Wisdom chapter 6, verse 1. Hear therefore, O ye kings, and understand, ye that be judges of the ends of the earth, the children of Israel, were to be scattered to the ends of the earth. Give ear, ye that rule the people, and glory in the multitude of nations. Abraham's seed was prophesied through Jacob to become many nations. For power is given you of the Lord, and sovereignty from the highest. Jacob, Israel, means in one definition of the word that Jacob would be he who rules with God, or he who prevails through God. Sovereignty from the highest, who shall try your works and search out your counsels. Because being ministers of his kingdom, you have not judged right nor kept the law. And only the children of Israel were obliged to keep the law because the law was only given to them. You have not judged right nor kept the law nor walked after the counsel of God. Horribly and speedily shall he come upon you, for a sharp judgment shall be to them that be in high places. When we first discussed these verses, we pondered whether Solomon was addressing kings of his own time, 
or if he was considering the children of Israel collectively to be the kings and servants of Yahweh, something which is also a matter of later prophecy. For example, in Isaiah chapter 41, we read, But now, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Israel, I'm sorry, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Then again in Isaiah chapter 44, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesu, run, whom I have chosen. So it is confirmed in Isaiah that the children of Israel collectively are the servants or ministers of Yahweh's kingdom. The children of Israel were also to be a royal priesthood. As they were informed in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. The Septuagint in that exact spot says royal priesthood. And that's the way the apostles interpreted it. That ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. There it does not say a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. In the manner in which the, state, the statement is interpreted, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see Peter tell the Christians of Anatolia, descendants of those same Israelites, that ye are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And therefore, it is evident that the children of Israel were to be servants of God by fulfilling their destiny and ascending to rule over the world in order to build his kingdom. Peter interpreted the passage just as it is in the Septuagint, where it also says royal priesthood. In those passages we have cited from Isaiah, even as the children of Israel had been taken into Assyrian captivity, Yahweh God was informing them that he would employ them as his servants to do his will. Ostensibly, once they turned to Christianity, Peter was certain that they would fulfill their duties as a royal priesthood, ministers of the kingdom of God. So here it is evident that while Solomon may have been advising the children of Israel collectively, it is more evident that he was specifically addressing all future kings and rulers over the children of Israel, where he had warned them that if they did not judge aright or keep the law, then a sharp judgment shall be to them that be in high places. They were supposed to be judges of the earth, and if they failed in their obedience to God, then they themselves would be judged. As a digression, we shall once again address those critics who claim that wisdom must have been written by an Alexandrian Jew of the first century before Christ. This attitude reflected by the author of wisdom, that the kings of the earth, who are not Judeans, would be expected to keep the laws of Moses and should be ministers of the kingdom of God, is absolutely contrary to the attitude of religious exclusivity maintained by Judeans of that time, the first century B.C. And 
later. For example, in Acts chapter 22, it is described that the Judeans of Jerusalem wanted to kill Paul as soon as he informed them that he intended to bring the gospel of Christ to distant nations, even though they themselves rejected the gospel of Christ. It is also fully evident that Judeans would not even recognize or eat with non-Judeans, the uncircumcised, and only dealt with the Romans when they were compelled to by force. The Judean authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls were absolutely opposed to Roman rule and expected a Messiah who would overthrow the empire. They certainly did not perceive the Roman emperor to be a servant or minister of God. For these and many other reasons, wisdom was not written by an Alexandrian. Both David and Solomon considered themselves to have sat on the throne, to have sat on the throne of Yahweh, as it expressed, as it is expressed in First Chronicles chapter 29. Then Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David his father and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. However, few kings after them seem to have felt that same sense of responsibility towards God. So it is apparent that they did not consider themselves to be the ministers of his kingdom, as Solomon expresses it here. Yet the concept does appear once again in the words of Paul of Tarsus, in Romans chapter 13 where he explains that rulers are indeed the servants of Yahweh, by whom he rewards good and evil. And Paul referred to them as God's ministers explicitly. While it is a common plight of prophets, Solomon's warnings here seem to have been disregarded by most of his successors in Israel and Judah, and even by most of the kings throughout history. So we see many oracles against the kings of the nations in the words of the later prophets. For example, in Isaiah chapter 24, there is a prophecy of the day of the wrath of Yahweh, and it says in part, And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Speaking of the sins of ancient Israel, we read in Jeremiah chapter 2, As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. Again in Jeremiah chapter 32, we see once again that them that be in high places are held accountable for the sins of the people because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them. Yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind 
that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And now therefore, thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. While, of course, we live in different times, the patterns of wickedness have not changed. And the rulers will be held to the same account which befalls the common people when the day of judgment arrives. So with the return of the triumphant Christ upon a white horse in order to make war, as it is described in Revelation chapter 19, we read, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both great and small. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together, to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This warning against the kings of the earth continues throughout this chapter of wisdom. So now we will continue from where we had left off in our last presentation, and we read in the next verse of the chapter, in verse 6, For mercy will soon pardon the meanest, but mighty men shall be mightily tormented. Here the word for meanest, elekistos, is literally the least. And for tormented, the verb is a form of etadzo, which is literally to test. There is a similar warning in Proverbs chapter 29. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Likewise, Christ had warned in Matthew chapter 23 that whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But those who are humble are not necessarily those who are poor or who are of low stature or status. True humility is a willingness to obey God. And the proud have rejected obedience, and instead they depend on their own power for their righteousness as Solomon had described in the opening chapters of this book of wisdom. David, a king, wrote in the ninth psalm, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Yahweh, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to Yahweh, which dwells in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he makes inquisition for blood, he remembers them. He forgets not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Yahweh. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 13, referring to Israel in captivity, we read, Say unto the king and to the queen, Humble yourselves. Sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. So the mighty humble themselves through obedience, but 
not necessarily through poverty. The apostles, notably Paul and James, had used the phrase respected persons in relation to the political, social, or economic status of men, as well as of their stature and appearance. Here, in the context of this chapter, Solomon clarifies the understanding that Yahweh God, not being a respecter of persons, as Peter had also professed in Acts chapter 10, describes his righteous judgment in spite of a man's status or stature, where he says in verse 7, For he which is Lord over all, meaning Yahweh God, shall fear no man's person. Neither shall he stand in awe of any man's greatness, for he has made the small and the great, and they are all judged at the revelation. The birds, the fowls of heaven, eat the flesh of both. For he has made the small and the great and cares for all alike. Now we would read verse 7. We would translate verse 7 to read, For he who is Lord of all shall not shrink back, nor respect greatness, because he has made great and small alike and has care for them all. The differences are perhaps minor. Some of the verses in this King James translation are as good as I could ever translate them, and some of them I'm just unhappy with. But from the 33rd Psalm, Yahweh looks from heaven, he beholds all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And in that manner, Solomon continues here and says in verse 8, But a sore trial shall come upon the mighty. And we would translate that verse to read, but for the mighty, a severe inquiry approaches. In Luke chapter 1, in the words of Mary, the mother of the Christ, we see, we, we see repeated some of the promises of this same judgment, which are associated with the salvation which is in Christ. And she said, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Or sent away empty, if I could change the order of the words. A similar statement is found not as a prophecy, but as a historical observation and reflection in the wisdom of Sirach in chapter 10. The Lord has cast down the thrones of proud princes and set up the meek in their stead. Another similar statement offered as a general observation is found in the words of Job in Job chapter 12. He pours dishonor upon princes and heals the lowly. So for that, Solomon continues with an admonition. Unto you, therefore, O kings, do I speak, that you may learn wisdom and not fall away. Of course, where he said that, 
you may learn wisdom and not fall away. He is speaking to those kings who are expected to keep the law as he had stated in verse 4. So he is addressing future kings of the children of Israel and none others. He's not addressing kings who are not of the children of Israel. Only the children of Israel ever had the law, and it was only intended for them, as Solomon's own father, David, had written in the Psalms that he gave his laws and his statutes to Israel. And David rejoiced that he had not done so with any other nation. So now, Solomon reiterates that same sentiment again, where he addresses only those who are expected to be holy. And he says in verse 10, For they that keep holiness, and he's referring to these kings in verse 9, For they that keep holiness holily, in a holy manner, shall be judged holy, and they that have learned such things shall find what to answer or they shall find a defense or an apology. Ostensibly, at the same day of judgment, where those who do not find these things shall face severe trial. The, word for, the words for holiness, holily, and being judged holy, are respectively from an adverb, an adjective, and a verb, which in Greek are all derived from the noun hosius. According to Liddell and Scott, in ancient Greek, hosius describes something which is sanctioned by the law of God, as opposed to dikahius, which describes something sanctioned by human law. The Greeks made a distinction of that. Another word sometimes translated as holy, hagias, describes something set apart for the purposes of God. So what is holy here? <clears throat> and either God or man can make something hagias in ancient Greek culture by placing it on the temple of an altar and dedicating it to the God. Yahweh actually demanded that Abraham make Isaac Hagias, when he placed him on the altar, even if he didn't follow through with the sacrifice. Isaac's being placed on the altar, Abraham was dedicating Isaac to the purposes of Yahweh God. And we might be able to try to imitate that, but Abraham did it at Yahweh's insistence. So we can't imitate it. No man can imitate it. So what is holy here? in verse 10, is what is decreed in the laws of God, which were given only to the children of Israel. And therefore, the kings which Solomon is addressing are indeed the future kings of the children of Israel. And Solomon is therefore writing prophetically, they that keep the things ordained in the laws of Yahweh in a manner which is described by the law to keep holiness holily, they shall be judged righteous, or judged holy, as decreed by the law. And that shall stand as their answer in the day of judgment. Here Solomon also professes a belief in the promises to Abraham, ultimately inherited by Jacob, 
that they would be fulfilled in the children of Israel as they were written. For example, in Genesis chapter 35, where we read concerning Jacob, and God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation. Now, the children of Israel in Palestine were never more than two nations, if you want to say that. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it. And did I seed after thee will I give the land. But just because Jacob was given the land of Canaan does not mean that his posterity would be confined to that land. As we read in Isaiah chapter 27, that he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom in blood, blossom and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. Where in the opening verse of this chapter, Solomon informs us that he is addressing kings that be judges of the ends of the earth. He is evidently writing for the future time when the prophecies of Moses would be fulfilled and the people of Israel would be scattered to the ends of the earth. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, and for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush, let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people, meaning the people of Israel, together to the ends of the earth. And they, ostensibly the horns, are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Likewise, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The fulfillment of this we read in the commission of Paul of Tarsus, which the ascended Christ had conveyed to Hananias as he cared for Paul after his experience on the road to Damascus. From Acts chapter 9, as it is translated in the Christiania New Testament, Hananias is told to go, <clears throat> for he is a vessel chosen by me who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Now, most modern translators cannot understand that so they pervert the Greek to make it look like the nations and the kings and the sons of Israel are three different parties when they are indeed all one and the same. Later, Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> and Paul was only an apostle to the uncircumcised, which proves my point right there. He was never the apostle to the circumcision. Later, Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4 that the promises to Abraham had been fulfilled and that his seed had already become many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Those are the 12 tribes to whom he had brought the gospel. According to his own words in Acts chapter 26, who 
as he professed in Acts chapter 22, were in nations afar off from Judea and were evidently in Europe and Anatolia as those places were the object of all of Paul's missions. Solomon continues to admonish the future kings of Israel in the name of wisdom. Wherefore, set your affection upon my words. Desire them, and ye shall be instructed. The word for instructed here is from the verb, pahiduo, which is primarily used to describe the education or the correction of a pahis, which is a son. That was also the theme of Proverbs. Although it is not explicitly expressed in that manner here, Proverbs is transmitted as a father giving his education to a son. So in Proverbs, where a father is instructing a son in wisdom, which is the wisdom of God, we read in chapter 8, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. In other words, don't try to pull one over on me. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. By me kings reign and princes decree justice. Now the benefits of wisdom are described like some of the attributes of a beautiful woman. Wisdom is glorious and never fades away. Yeah, she is easily seen of them that love her and found of such as seek her. Now that phrase, eucharis theoritahi, which is easily seen here, would better have been translated as suitable to look at, or even more appropriately, pleasant to look at. Wisdom is pleasant to behold for them that love her. Here Solomon commences with a protracted anthropomorphism by giving human attributes to the wisdom of God and portraying it as a woman. He did this very same thing in the Proverbs and issued similar warnings of the judgment which men who ignore her allures shall inevitably face. For example, in Proverbs chapter 1, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, that would be the markets, in the openings of the gates. In the city she utters her word, saying, how long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But you have set it not all my counsel, and would none, or wanted none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes, when your fear cometh as a desolation, and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. In contrast, Solomon says here, 
She prevents them that desires her. And I'm going to say in contrast, but that's an unfortunate translation. She preventeth them that desire her in making herself first known unto them. This translation is strange. Why would Solomon urge men to seek wisdom if wisdom herself would prevent them? He had already said that she is easily seen according to these same translators and that she is found by those that seek her. We would translate verse 13 more accurately to read, she comes upon those who desire to know her beforehand. And that's perfectly literal. But Solomon would be writing from experience. As we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, In that night did God appear unto Solomon, and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Yahweh God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me a king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked for riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast thou asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, as none of the kings have had that have been before thee. Neither shall there any after thee have the like. The exchange was also recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3. So Solomon continues to write similarly, ostensibly from his own experience. Whoso seeketh her early, referring to wisdom, shall have no great travail, for he shall find her sitting at his doors. And once again, we would translate verse 14 to read, He arising for her in the morning shall not be wearied, for he shall find her sitting beside his gates. So once again, Solomon is informing his intended audience that wisdom is not difficult to find. And when men seek to find it early, they will not toil to do so because it will be found close by. Searching for wisdom rather than riches, they would be granted wisdom by God. The possibility is explained in Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide thy commandments with thee, in other words, hide my commandments within thee, keep them within you, so that thou incline thy ear to, to, unto wisdom, and apply thine heart to understanding. Yeah, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest 
for her, meaning for wisdom, as for hid treasures. Then shalt thou understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keeps the paths of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. There are many parallels between the discussions of wisdom found here and in the Proverbs. However, the same concepts are often expressed in different terms. Wisdom comes from God, as it is made evident here in chapter 7, where Solomon wrote, Wherefore I prayed, and understanding was given me. I called upon God, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. This same thing is expressed in Proverbs in several ways, but explicitly in chapter 30, where we read, God has taught me wisdom, and I know the knowledge of the holy. So if you keep the holiness holy, you will be judged holy. But making this commentary, it would be tedious to illustrate every possible example of these parallels. And we shall instead try to focus our concern with those that we may find help to explain the devices which the author had used, or that illustrate the prophetic elements of his writing, or which serve to clarify, or which correlate with other aspects or passages of the scripture. And even if I achieve that, I can't possibly highlight every parallel between this book and the book of Proverbs, or this book and all the books of the prophets. But I will try to hit on all of the major ones, or the important ones. So Solomon continues in verse 15. To think, therefore, upon her is perfection of wisdom, and whoso watches for her shall quickly be without care. Now that phrase, without care, comes from the Greek word amerimnos, which was primarily used to describe something free from care or unconcerned. So we would interpret this to mean that whoever obtains the wisdom which is of God should be without concern as he steps through life. As the Apostle John had written in chapter 4 of his first epistle, that there is no fear in love. Now, fear is certainly a heightened concern. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. As we shall see in the verses which follow, Solomon is going to arrive at a similar conclusion, albeit in a different way. Speaking of wisdom, for she goeth about seeking such as are worthy of her, shows herself favorably unto them in the ways or in the roads, and meets them in every thought. In spite of his later sins, which also serve as an example to all of his successors, Solomon was granted wisdom because he sought wisdom, 
rather than ask for further riches or a long rule or anything else that may have satiated base and worldly desires. But even in the time of his sin, Solomon attested when he wrote Ecclesiastes that he knew that he was sinning and later seems to have repented of it where he related the entire experience as an exercise in learning. As we had discussed in part 8 of our commentary on Ecclesiastes, titled, Even Vanity is Vanity. From the vanity of his own experience, Solomon had urged men to repent while they have an opportunity. He realized from experience that there was no profit in folly. While he was also fortunate enough, in spite of his sin, to have lived long enough to explain why it is so. Therefore, he now writes of discipline as the true beginning of wisdom. For the very true beginning of her is the desire of discipline, and the care of discipline is love. The word for discipline is pahidia, which primarily describes the discipline, training, or education of a child. The word for care is more literally thought. The thought of discipline, the thought of obeying the laws and commandments of God, is love. From Proverbs chapter 9, where the King James translation of the Hebrew is wanting, and therefore we prefer the version found in the Septuagint. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the counsel of saints is understanding. For to know the law is the character of a sound mind. Now Solomon continues to speak in respect to the same thing. And here he arrives at the conclusion, which is also found in the first epistle of John. And love is the keeping of her laws. Now this is the wisdom which comes from God. And love is the keeping of her laws, which means God's law. And the giving, the giving heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption. And incorruption makes us near unto God. While David, in the 119th Psalm, had written about his love for the law. Only here in wisdom and in the New Testament is love defined as keeping the law. In Romans chapter 13 we read, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. If you love your brother, you fulfill the law. Then in 1 John chapter 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. But we see Solomon's intended meaning here is even more fully expressed in the Gospel of John. In the words of Christ in John chapter 14. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So Solomon is right that keeping the commandments of the law results in incorruption, and that brings us near to God. As a digression, note that Solomon said nothing about the rituals and ordinances that the first century Judeans relied upon so heavily for their own perception of their righteousness. 
and for which Christ had often chastised them as hypocrites. So it is once again evident that the author of wisdom was certainly not a first century Judean. Now Solomon describes the result of love for and a keeping of the commandments of God. Therefore, the desire of wisdom brings to a kingdom or bringeth to a, to a kingdom that should be leads to a kingdom. The desire of wisdom leads to a kingdom. The kingdom of God is not built by the force of men. And therefore, there must be something greater which brings it together. Loving God and keeping his commandments, a man must also love his brethren. And one cannot love one without the other. You cannot love God without loving your brethren. As we read in 1 John chapter 4, If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Even though, one, even though love for one's neighbor is not explicit in the so-called Ten Commandments, which we would only call the Ten primary commandments, as there are indeed many others, the Apostle James cited a passage found only in Leviticus chapter 19 and described it as the foremost law of God, where he said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, of his only epistle, I'm sorry, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Paul of Tarsus professed the same ideal in Galatians chapter 5, where he said, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Of course, a neighbor is not merely some random person who happens to be nearby. A neighbor must be of one's own people, of one's own kindred, as it is defined where that law appears in Leviticus chapter 19, and it says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So right there in Leviticus chapter 19, the only place that law appears in the entire Old Testament. One's neighbor is defined as one of the children of thy people. The two ideas cannot be separated. As a digression, six times in this chapter, the word translated as wisdom is from Sophia, which is the word personified by later Greeks as the goddess of wisdom. But their wisdom did not come from Yahweh. Perhaps they copied the concept from Solomon. But once, in verse 15 here, phronesis was translated as wisdom. And that word may have been rendered as understanding instead. It was translated as wisdom several times in the earlier chapters of this book as well. 
as another digression. As we had discussed at length in part two of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, titled The Introduction of Wisdom. Verses 17 through 20 of this chapter are an example of a, of a grammatical construct called a sorites, which is said to be typical of Hellenistic period Greek. In that discussion, we saw that other, although shorter, examples of such a construction are found in the books of the prophets. And along with other arguments, I hope to have already shown that the charge that such is proof of a Hellenistic period for the authorship of wisdom is false. It is actually more of a slander than a charge. Now, while Solomon will change the subject slightly in the verses which end the chapter, so we won't get to them this evening, he gives his ultimate warning concerning wisdom to the future kings of Israel. If your delight be then in thrones and scepters, O ye kings of the people, honor wisdom that ye may reign forevermore. The desire for wisdom leads to a kingdom. Not that every man would rule, but that in that manner, the kingdom of heaven would be manifested upon earth when men love one another and their rulers love the people over whom they rule. That is the same message of Christ in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which his apostles had each echoed, as we just cited, James, Paul, and Peter, his apostles had, and John, his apostles had each echoed that message in their own way. This aspect of the purpose and plan of God is not explicit in any of the other scriptures of the Old Testament. And therefore, Solomon, the author of this book of wisdom, is a prophet of the gospel of the kingdom. Solomon is a prophet of the gospel of the kingdom because only in the wisdom of Solomon, among all the books which predate the advent of Christ, is this message found. So here he instructs the future kings of Israel in that same wisdom. It's only here I should say that this message is found explicitly spelled out. However, at the same time, as we have also said here, the collective children of Israel were themselves to be kings and priests over the earth. And we read in Revelation chapter 1, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was, meaning Christ, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father, has made us, meaning each and every Christian, kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
So this book of wisdom is not only for the wisdom of kings, but of every man in Israel who seeks to rule with Christ. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.